Lord, we pray tonight. We pray tonight that your will would be done in our lives and in our hearts, that we would hear from you, that we would listen to you, Lord. May you speak tonight, Holy Spirit, as we prayed. Jesus, would you come by your Spirit and teach us this night? Would you help us to know what it is you would have for us tonight? Lord, would you speak through these words, these words that your very Spirit penned in John 7? I pray you would help me to have the right things to say that would change hearts and lives and draw us near to you. Pray these things in your precious Son's name, Lord. Amen. Um, so tonight, like I said, what, what are you looking for something? Sorry. Sorry. I'm not grabbing notes. Like I said, tonight we're going to go ahead and go through uh, the rest of John 7, which I'm excited to do. I love this passage because it makes something explicit um, that it shows up again and again in John. And the nice thing about the explicitness of what Jesus is going to say, what is said here, is that it makes interpretation really easy. A lot of times interpretation has to be done uh, because we have to try to understand what is being said. But here, John's going to tell us very clearly what Jesus means when he says. So we have an authoritative interpretation of what this passage is about. Like I told you, we're in John 7, we're starting in verse 37, and we'll go to the end of the chapter, or the, the last, second to last verse of the chapter, which is verse 52. But as I told you, this whole uh, background to this passage is the Feast of Tabernacles, right? So that's what we're, we're looking at, where the Jews would live in booths, and they would go out of their normal homes, and they would remember the days of living in the wilderness that their fathers and their ancestors did. And so here... It says it's the last day, the great day of the feast. And so Jesus, in the last day, it says he stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We'll stop there for a minute. So we know, like I told you, this, this Feast of Tabernacles is in the background. And so one of the things we've learned through study, um, and, and actually you'll see in, um, I'll give you, one of many possible backgrounds here is Nehemiah 8. And as far back as Nehemiah's time, the post-exile period, they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And in Nehemiah 8, it talks about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles being celebrated again for the first time since the days of Joshua, is what it says in Nehemiah 8. And so what happens is, remember, they find the law. It's been missing, and they haven't seen it for a very long time. And Ezra, the, the priest, he finds it, right? Ezra, the scribe, the priest, he finds it. And it says he reads the law out loud to the people. And when they're reading the law in Nehemiah 8, they hear about the Feast of Tabernacles. 
They read out of it, uh, out of Leviticus, and they remember, oh, th- there's this feast that the Lord wants us to do. And so they say, let's commit to do it. Let's do it. And so all of Israel is, is told to go and make booths and live in those booths and make these tents, right? These out of, out of palm branches and, and olive branches, all these materials from the earth. And they live in these tents. And that's in Nehemiah 8. And like I said, that's the, since the days of Nehemiah, this festival has gone on from Nehemiah's day all the way to Jesus's day. Okay, so this is a very long-standing tradition. And so what happens is, what we know of the tradition, like I've, I told you last week, is there is this water-drawing ceremony. And what happens is, they would draw water from the pool of Siloam, which will come up again in John, in John 9. That's where Jesus sends the man born blind to wash in the pool of Siloam. And they would draw water from it and put it in a flask and they would take it up to the temple. And when they entered the temple, they would go up to the altar and they would pour out a, a pitcher of wine, for one, representing the new wine, the harvest, and then water, which was also related to harvest through rain. But what came to be known as... This was a representation of the spirit, the spirit that they were waiting to be poured out, the water, the water and spirit imagery. And so when they poured out water on the altar, one of the things they would read was uh, Zechariah 13, which Zechariah 13 says this. Now, you can write Zechariah 13 on your notes if you have them as a possible background. Now, I'm writing possible because there's a whole slew of different places we could go to find backgrounds. But we'll come back to that in one second. But Zechariah 13 says, For a fountain will be opened for Judah and all Israel for its sins and its impurities. It's talking about cleansing, right? Cleansing from this fountain that will be opened. That's Zechariah 13. So the question of the background of this passage is this. Jesus says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, it actually says from out of his belly, that's what the actual words behind it is, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Well, what's the problem? Why do we have such a problem coming up with the background? There's no quotation of scripture there. There's no scripture that says from out of the innermost, innermost being, rivers of living water will flow. So no one knows exactly the specific verse that they can point to and say, this is what Jesus is quoting. This is what Jesus is quoting. And I think the best understanding is that Jesus is making a theological point, right? He's not quoting a specific verse. He's talking about a plethora of verses and what they talk about, right? So I have several backgrounds that there could be. There's three or four in Isaiah. Isaiah 44 is a great one. Isaiah 44, I will pour out water on the dry ground, pour out my spirit on your offspring. That's one that could be connecting in that thought. That's Isaiah 44. Another is um, Isaiah 55. talks about drawing water from the springs of salvation. And that's also a a probable reference to the spirit. I told you about Zechariah 13. That's another possible background. What I think is the best background, and this is my opinion, so this is just Jeremy here. This is my interpretation. Is Ezekiel 47. Okay, Ezekiel 47. 
In Ezekiel 47, what is being talked about is the new temple. Remember in Ezekiel, he starts talking about this third temple that's going to come. And he gives all its measurements, and, he, and he's extensive in talking about what it's going to look like and how it will be measured. And, and in Ezekiel 47, what it says is, I went to the house. He actually calls it the house. By that, he means the temple. I went into the house, and a river started flowing out of it. And he says it started as a trickle out the south side, and it grew. And every time I would go out another thousand feet, it would grow deeper and deeper until it became a sea that covered the whole earth. And trees were planted by it, and, and the trees were alive, right? It's, it's all this imagery that John's going to pick up again when he writes Revelation 21 and 22. Remember the stream flowing out of New Jerusalem. And here, I think it's the background. Here's why I think it's the background. Jesus, it doesn't tell us this explicitly, but because of the water ceremony that they had just seen in the temple, it's most likely that Jesus is calling out while he stands in the temple. While he stands in the temple, he's most likely calling out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And he's in the midst of the temple, and they know the water represents the Spirit. And he says, in the temple, this water is representing something greater. It's representing the Spirit who's going to be poured out. And if you remember all the way, this is a long time ago, back to John 2. You remember Jesus cleansing the temple? What did Jesus say the new temple was? That new temple that was coming. He said, destroy this temple in three days and I will, I, he says, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days, right? What's he referring to? Himself. Mm-hmm. Himself. So Jesus, standing in the midst of the temple, says that water, right, that, that, that anyone who's thirsty can come to him and have a drink and water will flow out of them. This is another reference to Jesus, the new temple, from whom the Spirit will flow. Just like Ezekiel 47. The temple where the river flowed out and covered the whole world. And everyone found everyone who, who drank of that water found life. Jesus is claiming the same thing about himself. Again, he's calling himself this new temple. This new temple from whom the Spirit flows. And so he says, if you want a drink from the fountain, if you want a drink from the wellspring, come to me and drink. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me, the new temple, and taste of the Spirit. And in fact, it will flow out of them. The Spirit will flow out from the innermost places. The Spirit will pour out. And of course, Jesus is the source of that Spirit as he speaks here. And it's nice in verse 39 that John tells us it's the Spirit. He's not just referring to water, he's referring to the Spirit. And we know this because John tells us. So we don't have to make an interpretation. We know Jesus is talking about the Spirit because John tells us explicitly. But this he spoke of the Spirit. And of course, not everyone understands. And why does not everyone understand? Well, John explains the Spirit hadn't been given yet because Jesus hadn't been glorified. And what is Jesus' glorification in John? His death. His death. Since Jesus had not been crucified, 
the Spirit could not yet be poured out. So John tells us, even as Jesus was speaking this, the time had not come for the Spirit to be poured out because Jesus had not been crucified yet. So we'll continue in verse 40. And in verse 40, some of the people, they hear this and it says, when they heard these words, they were saying, this certainly is the prophet. And others were saying, this is the Christ. And still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize Jesus, but no one laid his hands on him. So again, the crowd is divided. We see it. We've seen it before, even in John 7. But we've seen it many times before. The crowd does not know what to make of Jesus. Some are saying he's the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Some are saying he's the Christ, right? The new David come, the Messiah. And, and of course, we now can look back and say, well, Jesus was all of those things, right? We have that vantage point that we can look back and see that all those figures were coming together in Christ. But they didn't have that. Right? A lot of people thought they would probably be two separate people, the Christ, the, Mas- uh, the, the prophet. Right? They didn't have any categories to say that they would be one person. So they had all these different ideas about who he was. And of course, some of them, here's the irony. This is John's famous irony coming up again. Right? The rest of this section in John 7 is all ironic. They say, well, the, the Christ is not going to come from Galilee. right? We know where he's going to come from. He's going to come from Bethlehem. From Bethlehem. The background of that is Micah 5.2. If you look in your notes. Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 is the prophecy about a ruler of Israel coming out of Bethlehem, right? The least, not even big enough to be a tribe amongst Judah. And yet, out of Bethlehem will come a ruler who was from of old, from ancient times, it says. That's Micah 5.2. And so, they quote that they know that scripture, and they're thinking about it, and they say, well, he's from Galilee. He, he's a Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. He, he's not from Bethlehem. And, of course, there's John's irony. Because if you have been exposed to the Jesus tradition, for those who've read the Gospel of John, they've probably already read Matthew. They've probably already read Mark. They've probably already read Luke. And so they know the stories at the beginning of Matthew and Luke that say Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke tells us about the census, right? About returning to Bethlehem from Nazareth. That's where Joseph was from, Jesus' earthly father. What's interesting is John alludes to the other Gospels by mentioning that because he expects his readers to pick up on it. But John himself in his own Gospel has never once mentioned Jesus being from Bethlehem, which is interesting. Never once has John said, Jesus is from Bethlehem. He's never alluded that he wasn't really from Galilee even. This is the first time. In fact, this is the first and only mention of Bethlehem and David in the Gospel of John. Is this little allusion to the other Gospels. Isn't, you know, the one like David going to come from Bethlehem? And if you've been exposed to Christianity, especially back in that day, you would know, well, Jesus did come from Bethlehem. The crowd didn't know. They didn't know Jesus well enough. But the Christians knew he came from Bethlehem. But why doesn't John mention anything about Bethlehem? Well, John's focus 
is on heaven, right? John's primary focus is not on the Jesus from Bethlehem, it's on the Jesus from the Father, right? When John begins his gospel, he's not so concerned with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. He's concerned that Jesus came from heaven. He came from above. And throughout the entire gospel, remember, John keeps saying that. I come from above, you come from below. Jesus references that over and over. And that's the point John wants to make. He wants to remind his readers that, yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He is the Christ. But also, more importantly than even that, he is from heaven. That's where his ultimate origin is. And yet the crowds don't know either of those things. They don't know his origin from heaven, nor his origin from Bethlehem. Verse 45. Remember, the Pharisees had sent out officers, and so that comes back up again. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They're entranced by Jesus. It doesn't say what about his speech that they were entranced by. But we know from other passages and other, in the other Gospels, some were struck by his authority. Some were struck by how learned he was, right? He was an edu- they act. How could this man be uneducated and yet know the scriptures the way he does? They were struck by a whole bunch of different things. This specific passage doesn't tell us, but we know that Jesus' words were powerful and people were struck to the core by them. And so these officers that were sent to arrest Jesus, who knows, maybe some of them even start to believe in him. That maybe they are some of those who were saying, is this the prophet? Is this the Christ? Listen to the Pharisees' response. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. It's accursed. This whole section, like I told you, is ironic. It's meant to highlight how little the Pharisees know. Not only do the people not know where Jesus is from, but the Pharisees don't even know that some of their own have started to believe in him. See, we as the readers remember John 3. Nicodemus came to question Jesus, and we're going to see Nicodemus again right after this. And it says even later, I think it's in John 12, uh, where it says that some of the rulers started to believe, but they were afraid. They were afraid because they sought the approval of men rather than God. But they says they believe. The Pharisees don't even realize that some of their own have started to believe. And they look at this crowd, I mean, look at the elitism of them, of their hearts. This stupid, foolish crowd of nothings and nobodies have been deceived by this this demagogue, this one who will get up and say whatever it takes to sway people to his position. This crowd is under a curse. This crowd is under a curse. How quickly they turn 
to damning this crowd because they believe in Jesus. This crowd must be under a curse, and they know nothing of the law, right? They're uneducated, they're foolish, they're stupid, they're common. We, the Pharisees, the educated, the elite, the smart, we know better. We've figured this Jesus guy out. And none of us believe in him. So you officers must be just like the common folk. Verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, being one of the rulers, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what, his, what he is doing, does it? The Pharisees answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And again, John's irony is on full display. Right? And this Nicodemus, who's the one who has started to believe, they don't even know that any of them have started to believe. Nicodemus has started. And so he speaks up in defense of Jesus. And they instantly dismiss him. They instantly dismiss him. And yet Nicodemus is right about their law. They're even ignorant of their own law. And they ignore it in the case of Jesus because they're unwilling to hear him. Nicodemus points out a legitimate point of law that they should hear what he has to say. And the Pharisees who are these great people in their own eyes, right? These great law followers ignore their law because they're so ready to condemn Jesus. And Nicodemus calls them out on it and they brush him off in ignorance of their own law. And of course, in their rage, they just turn to insulting Nicodemus, right? You're as bad as Jesus. You must be from Galilee too, right? Are you from Galilee, Nicodemus? Like one of these awful, common, itinerant prophets? You're just like him. Search, search meaning search the scriptures. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. That's interesting because both Jonah and Nahum came from Galilee. Again, the irony, if you know the scriptures, there are prophets from Galilee, or at least the region that was called Galilee in the first century. In fact, in the rabbinic scriptures, years after this, after the first century, it's said that a prophet arose from every one of the tribes of Israel. They write that in their own words and hear the Pharisees. They ignore, too, that we have in the scriptures already that we know explicitly are from Galilee. This whole ironic picture is the common folk, you know, the uneducated, the weak, the sick, are starting to believe. And the educated, religious, elite, those who have, you know, who are really righteous in their own eyes, and frankly are much more righteous than the common folk in keeping the law, they can't see Jesus for who he is. They cannot discern who he is, despite all their education and their great status and their 
superior knowledge. They cannot discern Jesus' true nature. They're unwilling to take a drink. They're unwilling to take a drink. And it says that they haven't even heard from him, have they? This ruling elite of the Pharisees and chief priests have not even heard Jesus. For the scripture, that's where we'll stop tonight. But I'm, I'm li- listening to what Jesus had to say in this passage about pouring out of his spirit that we can come to him and have a drink. And we're so fortunate, so fortunate to be Christians in this age. So fortunate to be Christians at all when the people before Christ never had the Spirit dwelling in them permanently the way that we do now for who believe. One of my favorite passages on the Spirit is in Numbers 11. And Moses, the great, greatest prophet in Israel's history until Jesus, the one they all revere and venerate, Moses is there, and we know Moses has the Spirit. Right? The Spirit dwells on Moses, and when he goes up and meets with the Lord, it says his face glows because he'd been in the presence of God. And then in Numbers 11, Moses is overwhelmed. He has too much to do. He cannot judge the people from day to night and settle all their disputes. He needs some help. And so his father-in-law says, well, let's appoint some, some other people to help you. And the Lord tells Moses, I'm going to take some of the spirit that I've put on you and I'm going to put it on 70 elders. 70 elders who will help you and be led by the spirit and guide, be, be guided by him and they will help you judge the people. And so it happens. The spirit, a part of the spirit is taken from Moses and given to these 70 elders and they all fall down and prophesy. And Joshua's there. You know, Joshua, Moses' great disciple is next to him. And Joshua says, Moses, do you want me to stop them? Do you want me to stop them? They're they're taking your place. That's for you to do. It's not theirs. I'll, I'll go stop them. And Moses says, Moses doesn't even know. And he says, are you jealous for my sake, Joshua? If only all the people could have the Spirit of God. See, Moses can't even fathom that as a reality. It's a pipe dream to him. It's a pipe dream to him that the people of God would have the Spirit of God, that all of them could partake of the Spirit. And in that early reference, Moses says that, man, if only Joshua, if only all the people could have the Spirit. Mm. How beautiful would that be? But it's never going to happen. And of course, as you read through the prophets, you read through the rest of the Old Testament, that is the very promise the Father makes. In Joel 2, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and the old men will dream dreams, and the young men will see visions. That's... Isaiah 44 that I told you about earlier. 
I will pour out my spirit on the dry ground and it will become a garden full of life. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and offspring. That's Ezekiel 47. The spirit comes like water flowing out of the temple to cover the earth with the Lord's presence. And that image is picked up again in Revelation 21 and 22, the most beautiful passage in all of Scripture. The vision, the hope that we have, new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. And it says, in that, the temple of the Lord and of the Lamb is in the midst of it. In fact, it, they are the temple. They are the temple. And what it says in Revelation 21 and 22, and a river flowed out from the throne of the Lord and the Lamb. A river flowed out. And who is that river? The very Spirit of God. And the river flows out from the throne and it says trees lined the river. And those trees had leaves and those leaves are for the healing of the nations, is what it says. That is the Spirit. The great river whom we come to Jesus to drink from. That very spirit that Moses could not dream that we all could taste of, Jesus gave. Jesus gave. The promise of the Father to pour out his spirit was fulfilled because Jesus died, because Jesus rose, because Jesus was exalted to the throne of his Father so that he could pour out his spirit on mankind, and particularly on and in those who believe. And yet we know the day of the Lord that is, is so characterized by this pouring out of the Spirit is a day of salvation and of judgment. The two are two sides of the same coin. There is salvation and judgment. And when we get to John, the, the upper room discourse of John 13, 14, 15, 16. It's going to be very clear the Spirit's coming for what? To convict the world in judgment, in righteousness, and, in, and because of their sin. That's what it says in, later in John. And we know that the Spirit comes both to convict and to save. Right When John the Baptist calls out at the beginning of John, what does he say? One is coming greater than I who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. That fire is judgment. That fire is judgment. Purification in some cases and judgment in others. And so I think about today. I think about where we are today as a society, as a world. What could we need more than the Spirit's salvation and the Spirit's judgment that He has to offer to the world and to Christians today? The more you read and see and understand of the world and news and in TV and in what 
you think in, even in your own heart, the more you realize how much we need this very Spirit of God to judge us and to save us. The beautiful thing about the Christian, the beautiful thing about the Christian is that we don't have to be afraid of the Lord's judgment anymore because he judges us like sons who he disciplines. Why? Because he loves us. He disciplines us, according to Hebrews 13, because he loves us. That discipline is meant to instill greater righteousness in us. It's not meant to crush us. It's not meant to be wrath. It is so that we will become like Jesus. One of the main things the Spirit has been sent to do can form us to the image of Jesus, that we would look like him and think like him and act like him and love like him. The Spirit was sent to do that. We need that. We need that. The, the basis of Wellspring Church in my heart, even in, in the purposes that we've been doing stuff like thinking about incorporating, stuff like that as I was writing purpose, what purpose matters more than being like Jesus, conforming to that image. Jesus, the image of the perfect human. Jesus, the temple that we are being built into, it says. That Jesus, who is the temple, he's the chief cornerstone, and we are being built into a temple so that the Lord might dwell in us. And how does the Lord dwell in us who are being built together as a temple? By his spirit. By his spirit. When I thought about what the purpose of Wellspring Church was, what I thought of is, man, if my goal is one goal in having people be a part of the church that I, I want to lead, it's conforming them to the image of Jesus by the power of his very spirit. That is the goal of humanity, that we would be conformed to his image so that God would be our God. We would be his people he would dwell among us. Ezekiel 36. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. That we would be made like Jesus and that his spirit would fill this earth. His spirit would fill every corner of this earth with judgment and with salvation. And man, does humanity need both. I am so grateful that we serve a God who is not content to let evil go unpunished. Can you imagine the world we would live in mm -hmm. if evil was never punished? If we were stuck with the world as it is now forever? Some people view that as, as the purity of the God of love. That that's what the God of love looks like. I'll tell you what. I don't think there is a God of love who, who isn't just. To let the evil, the rape, the murder, the horrible atrocities of war and, and crime and, and the evil of our own hearts, who would let that go and just say, it's okay, it's all right, and never seek to deal with it. That doesn't sound like the God of love to me. 
And the same is true of the God of justice. Man, how quickly would the God of justice snuff us out if there were not mercy, if there were not salvation? How quickly should we be snuffed out, man? Thousands of years ago, this should have been over. You remember, the first human born, Cain, what does he do? He murders his brother. The first ever one of humans kind, right? One like his father and mother to be born, Cain, and he murders his brother. Man, we deserve to be snuffed out back then. And yet, what do we see when Cain does that? We see a God who protects Cain, puts a mark on him, says there will be vengeance for those who attack Cain. We see a God who, despite Adam and Eve's sin, clothes, he clothes them by his very hand. When he should have, by any estimation of justice, destroyed them. And where does that justice and, and mercy dwell together? We know it dwells together in Jesus. In Jesus who paid for our sins, who died for them, so that our sins could be paid for. That is justice. And yet he paid for our sins so that we might find salvation. That is mercy. He paid our price in our place. And he did it all. He did it all so that the Spirit could be poured out. So that God could dwell with us. That was his goal. Was that the Spirit could dwell in us and with us. So that God could be our God. We could be his people, and he could be able to dwell among us. That is the goal. And so what I, I pray for you tonight, church, what I pray for you tonight, everyone who is here listening tonight, take a drink. We need a fresh drink. Just like water, what an appropriate symbol. What an appropriate symbol because we constantly have to go back for more. We constantly have to go back for more. We need more. We need more of His Spirit. We need more of that living water in us. Always. We need to go back to Jesus to drink of that well. Just like we're never satiated physically for very long when we're not drinking. When we're not having new water enter us so too we have to constantly come back to Christ who offers us that living water. I pray you would do that tonight. Would we revel? Would we celebrate? Would we enjoy the mercy found in God's Spirit dwelling in us? And at the same time, would we not despise nor hate, nor scoff at his convicting judgment work in our lives so that we could be like Jesus. Mm. Let me bless you tonight. Lord, 
for every person in this room, on Zoom, anyone who may be listening to this days or weeks or months from now, Lord, I pray that you would, Jesus, pour your Spirit out on them afresh. Would they take a deep, (coughs) deep drink from you and taste of the goodness of the Lord. That in you, Jesus, we find salvation. We find freedom from ultimate judgment. And yet we know that judgment begins with the house of God, according to Peter. So that we could be made righteous and pure, blameless and undefiled. And I pray that for each person, this week would we drink afresh from you, Jesus, that we would taste of your spirit and, and rest in that and glory in that because we know that we have found salvation if we believe in you. Just like you said on that great day of the feast, the last day of the feast, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. For the one who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow out of their innermost being. Would you do that for each one of us tonight? Let us drink again. We trust in you. We believe in you. And we are prepared to share in your table tonight as a reminder of all you paid so that we could taste of that very spirit. Of all that it cost you to pay for our sins. It was not cheap. It was not something that we could say. Why don't I just keep sinning so that grace would abound all the more? Like it says in Romans, no, no, it cost you everything and every drop of blood of Jesus Christ was precious. May we not treat it with contempt. May we recognize the price it cost you, Jesus, and the price it cost you, Father, to watch your son be crucified and die. Bless these people. May they find salvation and rest. May they persevere. May they persevere in seeking after you and believing in you and in drinking of your spirit. Pray all these things in your name, Jesus, and by the very power the Spirit has supplied us to follow after you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Love you all. Love you all. Thanks for being here.